Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. Well, last week, quite a few of you were away with uh, various things, and I just wanted to kind of recap because I I laid a bit of a foundation for where we're heading this year, and and I I talked about three uh, separate kind of concepts that that lay the basis for a lot of what I, uh, how my faith is structured and what that looks like. And so, Alison, if we could put the first slide up there this morning, there there was a, a slide that I used last week preceding this, and I talk about the fact that we often try to fit God into our lives. I then finished off by saying, God's not a piece of the pie, God is the pie. And we do faith and life in context of God. And the verse there, Acts 17, 28, it's in him that we, it's through him that we live and function and have our identity. Another version says it's in him we live and move and have our being. We exist in God. The next thing I put up, I reminded us that as a church, we're about two things. We're about loving God and loving people and we do better or worse at this, and then we're hopefully growing in these things, but this will always be before us. Always be a challenge for us of loving God more and loving people better. And the third thing that I talked about was uh, I often describe the cross in, in a particular way. I talk about the upright part of the cross being about transaction, the work of the cross. That's what happens when Jesus Christ died on the cross and, and, and we become part of his family. There's a transaction that takes place. And the second part of it down the bottom here is the transformation, the way of the cross. See, salvation wasn't the end of the story. If that was the case, as soon as you become a Christian, you might as well punch your ticket and go to heaven. But that wasn't the, the end of the story. The story really began with the transaction and continues with transformation, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as God renews and refreshes and recreates us. The old is gone, the new has come. And what I talked about around that is that this part, the transformation, really is the theme that I want to focus on this year, the transforming work of God in our lives, what that looks like, how do we work with God and that what does it look like to be transformed and I said our theme for the year was to grow up and the idea around that was not just you need to grow up because you're immature but some of you do but it's about growing upwards growing towards God growing in his image growing in his likeness becoming more like him we grow in an upward trajectory as this process of transformation takes place and so then I stopped and I thought through all of these things. And okay, so, so what really for me is the text that would set this whole thing off? If I had to pick a single passage of scripture to focus on for this about growing up, about transformation, about being created in his image of God, what would that be? And the passage I landed on is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I'm sure I read those out of order, but it's okay. So the background to this particular passage of Scripture, it's an apostle or an epistle, a letter written by Paul 
to a group of churches in Galatia. And the, the churches that were there were mostly uh, full of, of Gentiles, so non-Jews. But there were these Jewish people that were part of it. And there was this whole collection of Gentiles that had found Jesus Christ. And, and as you read the, the early chapters of Galatians, it's, it, Paul's really addressing a particular issue. Should these new Christians live like the Hebrews did? Should they follow the law of Moses? The big question that makes a lot of guys in this room very nervous was, should they get circumcised? So Paul's addressing this issue. And basically, to save you reading it this morning as I'm preaching, Galatians 1-4, to the answer from Paul is no. We we live a free life. At the beginning of Galatians in chapter 5, I think verse 1, it says uh, about being free because of the Spirit of God. We have freedom in the Spirit. And then Paul, for the rest of Galatians 5 and 6, begins to talk about what this life looks like, the Spirit-filled free life looks like. Because you're free, don't waste that freedom. This is the kind of life you need to live. And so he paints for us this picture of the fruit of the Spirit after he's gone through a list of things that shouldn't be represented in our life, the, the negative fruit list. There's this list here. So this morning I want to teach us a little bit about this verse and begin to unpack this. And over the coming weeks, we're going to begin to look at some of these characteristics one at a time. And the first thing I want to point out this morning is, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit are. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this list before and what it represents and and actually what it is, but... Often the way we teach this, if I was to stand up this morning and say, what is the fruit of the Spirit? You would list these nine separate pieces of fruit. But the reality is that those that study these passages and look at these things tell us this list isn't nine separate pieces of fruit at all. It's one piece of fruit of which there are these characteristics. The fruit of the Spirit, singular, not plural, And there's a bit of debate and conflict around that, but in my research, I'm really comfortable settling on the fact that it's a single piece of fruit that is outworked in our life. Part of the confusion when we flip languages from the the Greek into the the English is we, we would use this kind of language. Fruit is both a plural and a singular. We don't say, I'm off to the shop to buy some fruits. We go to buy fruit, and we come back with multiple types of fruit. So when we read that, we can read it as a list and and, and assume that there's nine pieces of fruit. Now, in order to bring balance this morning and and, and give the full breadth of the discussion that's out there, there is some debate around that word love. And many commentators, or a few commentators, not many at this point, would say that this verse is actually saying the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then there's eight characteristics of that single piece of fruit being love. Now, if, if we read the New Testament, if we read uh, the, the context of who God is and transformation of being created in his image of God, you could paint a pretty strong case for the fact that love is the thing that's representative of God. That love is the thing that we are supposed to be displaying. In fact, that's what we talk about here as a church. The reality is, this morning, I'm not 
create, trying to create drama and, and, and all of that. But whether the fruit of the Spirit singular is love or the fruit of the Spirit singular is all of these characteristics together is actually irrelevant because they should all be a display in the life of a Christian. But I want you to understand this morning that there is some toing and froing around what that verse has, says or, or how it is in context. There's another thing that struck me as I reflect on the fruit of the Spirit and as I begin to try and understand it for myself. This is not going to be rocket science to you, but we often don't think about it in these terms. Christians, followers of the ways of Jesus, do not have exclusive access to that list of characteristics. It's not the domain in the realm of Christians and Christians only. I don't know any person that doesn't have at least some aspect of those characteristics in their life. I can think of some people who aren't Christians who have more of that going on in their life than a bunch of people who are Christians. So the reality is then, there's something else at play when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not simply that these characteristics would be present because they're already present in your life. In some form, some function, some way, these fruits are there. So the work of the Holy Spirit must be something different. It must be a different thing than just simply getting more of it. And so I stopped and I, I thought through that and, and what it would look like. And if we could put the next slide up, Alison, I kind of got to this point of thinking of the fruit of the spirit like it being on a continuum we're driving in a car we put our foot down and this is like the rev counter and it goes in this kind of direction we take our foot off the accelerator and it goes back in this direction and the fruit of the spirit in your life exists somewhere in this realm naturally but then there's a supernatural component to it because remember it's the outworking of the Holy Spirit. So there's a supernatural component which I kind of started viewing down this end. So in the natural, this is, is what can exist in anybody's life. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, you can experience peace in your life. You could be a gentle person. You, you could have self-control without the work of the Holy Spirit. So all of the fruit exists somewhere on this continuum, but the work of the Holy Spirit for framework of what I'm talking about this morning is up this end. The red line. The, the bit where you put your foot flat in the car and the car is screaming at you to stop and you go, no, just a little bit more, sweetheart, you can do this. So for me, with that kind of spoken about and out of the way, the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to this fruit in our life is twofold. I think there's two purposes. The first purpose, if anyone can have it, we all have access to it, we all have it in our lives, perhaps the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is enable these characteristics to develop faster than otherwise possible. You understand what I mean by that this morning? That if we've got them and they're at work in our lives and the end game is transformation, becoming like Jesus Christ, 
more like the image of God and the fruit of the Spirit is a display of that, then if the Holy Spirit's at work in us, then those things in our life can develop faster. We can become have access to more self-control than we would otherwise have if we stopped and worked on it in the natural. If we were to be entirely practical this morning, it's possible for us to sit down and write a list of behaviours and practices that would enable the, those characteristics to grow in your life. I could give you five steps for developing peace. I could write a, an entire book on all the practical things you could do to get self-control in your life. We can do that in the natural. Self-help books are everywhere. So the work of the Holy Spirit is beyond that. And I think part of what the Holy Spirit does is develop that very nature of God in us faster than is otherwise possible. Let me give you a verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 18. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have, been, who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Now there's some pretty pointed language in there that you may not immediately understand. It starts, this verse starts referencing, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, that's a reference to an Old Testament passage where Moses has gone up to receive the Ten Commandments. He's up Mount Sinai. He meets with God, and the glory of God was so extreme that it covered Moses. Moses comes down the mountain, and his face is shining so brightly because he's reflecting the image of God that the people say, cover your face up. So Moses puts a veil on his face to stop that glory of God reflecting onto other people because they felt bad, that brightness of the glory of God. They couldn't handle it. It's a really fascinating passage because eventually the glory goes, but Moses doesn't remove the veil because he doesn't want people to know that it's no longer there. It's a, it's some brilliant parallels there, but the point is this. The veil is removed so that we can reflect the image of God. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. All of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. As we encounter God, we reflect Him. We're being changed into His image. That's the end goal of transformation, becoming more like God. Have you ever met someone and thought, gee, that person's really godly? What we're saying is that they're like God. They're reflecting the image of God. I guess that would be the goal for all of us. What a great thing to be accused of, reflecting the image of God, being like God. What a, what a not in an arrogant, I'm so like God. So I guess the question I need to ask myself, am I reflecting God? Do I reflect who he is? And to help us 
understand this this morning, I, I have prepared a bit of an illustration. Elizabeth, can you come and give me a hand? Thank you. Uh, Sonia, can you come and hold this for Elizabeth? You, you can wipe for me, sweetheart. That'd be awesome. Thank you. We're supposed to reflect the image of God. And part of the reflection of this image, you see, as we become Christians, it's like we're this mirror. But we've got this junk covering us. We've got this old self-life covering what we're supposed to be reflecting. That the image is there, our image is there, but we're not reflecting God real bright right now. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to begin to Take away some of this rubbish. Oh, I'm losing my words. That's all right. Just wipe it off. I thought that might be the case. Underneath all the crap there, I'd written the fruit of the Spirit. So you can visualize it in your, in your mind. As we begin this process of transformation, the crap gets wiped away. Change takes place. We begin to reflect more and more and more of who God is. We begin to reflect his image and his nature and his characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control begin to become more and more evident in our life. The work, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is for that to happen faster and faster in our life than would otherwise be possible. We have the veil removed. We begin to reflect the very image of God. So next time you're thinking, what does it mean to be like God? What does it mean to reflect his image or what's transformation? Remember the mirror. It's what a mirror is designed to do is reflect an image. But sometimes we get smudges on our mirror. We get marks on it. And it's not reflecting a true image, or maybe there's a distortion in the mirror. The work of the Holy Spirit is to remove that so that we may reflect the true image of God. Thanks, girls. I can read some of the words there. I appreciate your help. Does that make sense? made sense to me. When I started thinking about reflection, I, I, I think about mirrors. I think about what is it that I'm supposed to be reflecting? What is that nature of God supposed to look like? And the second thing I think the fruit of the Spirit does, so the first thing, sorry, that the work of the Spirit does is, is bring it part to quicker. Speeds up that work of transformation in your life to create the image of God in you. The second thing I think it does is allows those characteristics to be present in our life when they shouldn't be present. In the natural, those characteristics can be very circumstance dependent. Depending on how you're feeling at any given time. Have you ever had a really, really good day? And then something happens and everything changes. I have had quite a few of those days. 
Probably the most memorable one I had was the day that I finished up as pastor at a previous church in New Zealand, youth pastoring there for eight years, and I was finishing up, I'd preached my last sermon, and the church took up a love offering for me, which is a great thing for churches to do for their pastors, by the way. And I went out for lunch with my friends and family, those that had walked the journey with me, and we had a great time. It was just great celebrating this journey as we were stepping into the unknown. Didn't know what tomorrow was going to look like, but we were celebrating today. Anyway, we got home and kids were kids. Jordan was about four, three, almost four. Mitchell was 18 months. And, and they were playing this game as kids do and they were on a couch and we had a mattress on the floor and they were jumping off the couch onto the mattress. I mean, what could go wrong? We'd, we'd thought of every single possible, we'd done risk management, youth pastor, we'd done a risk assessment and covered up all the sharp edges and we had a first aid kit ready and I had the ambulance on speed dial. We're good. We had a mattress down. No, we have made sure that nothing can go wrong. He could fall on his head and he'd, just, he'd be fine. Except you've met my son Mitchell, many of you. And Mitchell is jumping off the couch and he lands on the mattress and we hear this pop. And Kerry and I look at each other because the noise sounded wrong. And Mitchell started screaming. And we're like, oh gosh. Now you'll be right, mate. Get up, walk it off. Dad. Mum's like, are you okay? Mate, just stick a band-aid on it. He'll be fine. Anyway, he's screaming and we're like, I think he's broken his leg. So Kerry carefully picks him up and puts him in the car seat and starts driving to the hospital. And, and Mitchell's now immobilised in a car seat and got comfortable and stopped crying. So Kerry rings me and says, he stopped crying. I think he might actually be okay. Should I just come home or keep going? I said, just give him a whack. <laughs> See what happens. The next thing I hear, this screaming. I think you should keep going to the hospital. <laughs> Gets to the hospital, and 18-month-old Mitchell has broken his femur. And Kerry, sorry, it was, it was an after-hour surgery. She he just had an X-ray. The ambulance is here. We're on our way to hospital. He needs to have immediate surgery. And so I'm at home with Jordan, going, "Oh, I want to come." And Kerry's like, "You need to stay and look after. I've got this. It's okay." And, and the phone calls keep coming, oh, he's in surgery, and you know what you're like, it's your kid and he's in surgery and you don't know what's happening, and I'm at home and Kerry's sitting there having to wait for the surgery, and, and, and he comes out of hospital and he's put in a hip spiker cast. That's the cast they use to sort kids with, with unlined hips and other issues, and so he, down his right leg, he's got a full length cast, hip to ankle, half down his other leg, right round there with a bar across the front and a gap for a nappy. Six weeks in this cast as an 18-month-old, I want to tell you I have never smelt something so awful as a cast where you're changing the nappy in the cast. Mitchell incredibly basically learned to walk in this thing and then he kind of learned how to do this one. He was sleeping on a beanbag because he couldn't get in a bed. We'd had such an amazing day, and then in the moment, everything changed. I, th I think many of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit happen 
and the circumstance related. But part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to take it into the realm of not circumstance related, but spirit related. It's that miraculous bit, the supernatural bit. Philippians 4, 4-7 says, Always be full of the joy of the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Don't worry about anything. Pray, thank God, ask him, and you can experience peace beyond our understanding. That's supernatural peace. So, The work of the Spirit is to put us into a realm of experiencing those characteristics when they shouldn't normally naturally exist in your life. You've watched the news and you'll see someone, I can never forgive that person, I wish they were dead. You've seen those interviews on the news, right? As someone's done something to another family or this caused the death of a lost one. I've sat with people who are experiencing some of the most unimaginable loss, yet they have a sense of peace and joy. As I was thinking about that, that that you see some people that react one way and others that react another. A news article happened in my feed, and as I was reading it, there's this quote. And the headline of the article was, Family forgive the driver who kills their son. The family said they don't blame the driver who killed him and don't question the police's conduct. It was during a police pursuit. As much as I have lost a son, we don't see the point in bitterness or anger. God knows our beginning. He knows our end. That's the mother who has just lost a 20-something-year-old son by the actions of someone fleeing from the police. No bitterness, no anger, Just forgiveness. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit because that shouldn't exist. That doesn't exist in the natural. That's not normal. And that's why that's a headline and makes the news because it's not normal. So let's shift gear for a moment. The most important question, because today, and I'm going to do it very quickly, we're focusing on love. I needed to set the framework for the rest of it. This bit will go quite quickly, so don't panic. I'm not starting my sermon. That wasn't the introduction. The question then becomes not what is love, but what does supernatural love look like? What does love that doesn't make sense look like? How do we exist in the realm of supernatural love, beyond the realm of natural love, of the normal kind of love that everyone can have and experience. Remember, we're concerned about the supernatural, the work of the Holy Spirit. If this is a thing, if if I have processed this correctly, if I've done justice with my study and and the the prep and the weeks that I've been labouring over this to get to this point. If I've done that journey right and what I think this is talking about is correct, 
then we're going to see evidence of it in the life of Jesus. We're going to see evidence of it in the life of his followers. And therefore, we should begin to see evidence of it in our lives. So let's look at that process. What does love look like in the life of Jesus? Like I said, we're going to do this quick, and we could have spent the next five weeks talking about the love of Jesus displayed. Without going into great detail, the thought for me struck immediately the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus' outlining of how to love our neighbour, the, the practical response to someone who wasn't easy to love, someone who should have been avoided, but Jesus displayed love anyway in the story. That's supernatural love. Love displayed that should be withheld. What about the cross? In many ways, the cross is the ultimate display of the love of Jesus. But Jesus utters some words on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How powerful are words of love are those? Don't hold this against them. Jesus had every right to condemn those who had worked to have him murdered, who had falsely accused him, who had tortured him. He was well within his rights to be incredibly ticked off at that. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus didn't just preach love. He lived love. He spoke it with final words. He offered love. What about in the life of his followers? <laughs> I got stuck on this one person and I couldn't go beyond their story. And it's the story of Stephen who's being falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders of the day. That He's been dragged before the Jewish court and he's been accused of some things falsely. They've got some people to make some lies up about him and say these things. And they said to Stephen, is this true? And, and Stephen begins, you can read it in the book of Acts, this whole discourse on the history of the Jewish people from the very beginning right through. And then he basically slaps them with the scriptures and accuses them of some things. And knowing that it's not going to go particularly well for him, and he finishes and he has this vision of Jesus. Heavens are open before him and he sees Jesus sitting beside God. And the religious leaders freak out. Absolutely freak out. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 7, 57 to 60. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting because they didn't want to hear what he was saying. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, if we want to talk about transformation, we'll talk about Saul, who became the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. He's here at the stoning of Stephen, and they're putting their cloaks at the feet of this guy overseeing the murder of this man. Talk about transformation. The guy goes on to plant churches. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this, with this sin. And with that, he died. His final words reflected the very final words of Jesus. These false accusers who are murdering him in this moment. God, don't hold this against them. He loved them enough to say, don't let this count again. Let this be the thing that rules them out of your kingdom. 
I think Stephen got that message. I think he understood what Jesus was about. And so what does this look like in our lives? Let me read another passage of Scripture, Matthew 5, verse 44 to 48. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love him, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Supernatural love is not displayed in the way we treat our friends, but those who are not our friends. Can we put that final slide up, please, Alison, that quote? Supernatural love is not displayed in the way we treat our friends, but those who are not. Those who don't deserve our love. Those who have wronged us. The the word that the Bible uses is enemies, but these days most of us probably don't have too many enemies. It's kind of a a different thing. But, But those who are opposed to us, those who are against us, we can see it in the way we post on social media. The things we say about other people behind their back. The way we treat someone to get our own way or to serve our own agenda. The language we use when we're talking about people who are different to us. Worship team, you can come join me. Do you want to reflect the love of God supernaturally? It's not actually a magical thing. It's a practical thing. It starts with prayer. Pray for those who persecute you. It's displayed when we love people who we're justified to withhold that love from. Today, church, make the choice to reflect God's love. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. www.cofcpenrith.org.